Do you have a crystal ball? Uh, no, but I can I can sing a prayer for you. Now you have to ask yourself, what would any conspiratorial entity want with the art world? Um, well, I, I uh, uh, you know, it's a, a consensus control uh, with aspirational monuments has been the hallmark of, uh, of weaponized aesthetics. This is, in fact, a very risky uh, chance to, uh, to zoom back and think about our systems as something that might be... Uh, easy to manipulate and uh, amazing opportunities to find uh, um, the things that we've been looking for. Aaron, well, first thing, thank you so much for participating in this. I was really fascinated by your work. I have some artist friends who do similar, I'm not going to say similar, but they do large installations. And they all kind of started with a similar history of building haunted houses as children. And huh. I saw that in one of your works with the haunted house in Utah. And then I saw some of your work on the Soros Foundation. And it's just it fall, all fell into kind of some of the topics I'm interested in from, you know, psychological operations, art, memetics, anthropology. So I, I found like, wow, what a great artist. And I, I know you call yourself a curator and anthropologist, but maybe before we start, how do you usually introduce yourself to people? I mean, professionally or personally, or where do you usually start with? Yeah, uh, well, you know, my, my name is Aaron Moulton. I'm a, I'm a curator from the USA, but I've recently moved to, to Denmark. And uh, I spent the last 10 years in Los Angeles making really some of the most concentrated uh, work that I've been doing in my career. And, uh, and what to say, I, I studied curatorial practice um, and I've spent my life uh, really trying to unlock what I see as uh, secrets to um, uh, aspects of creativity that go, of course, that originate in thinking about contemporary art and the, the 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 strange evolution of perception that is the history of art, and and yet um, I have, have branched that out in a, in a very broad way to looking at all kinds of ways in which art is uh, uh, manifested and purposed through different lenses of of uh, New Age religion, spiritual practices, shamanism, but also propaganda initiatives and and so forth. So you know, really my uh, my work, I do prefer to see it as, as anthropology because in a way, all the exhibitions that I've made in the last 10 years have uh, functioned as uh, social experiments and thought experiments and ways to to trigger different understandings of, of, of what is creativity, where does it come from, what is it for, and how can we directionalize it to uh, different uh, purposes. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, but, you know, my work as a curator, it's, it goes across different, uh, institutional paradigms, uh, from working in huge, uh, commercial galleries. I was the in-house curator of Gagosian Gallery 
for uh, about four or five years, making group exhibitions across the global brand. But I also was the uh, curator, senior curator for the Utah Museum of Contemporary Art in Salt Lake City. I had a gallery, a commercial gallery in Berlin called Feinkost, which was a curatorial experiment, but uh, where I, I represented a number of these artists that come from this uh, Soros network. And uh, but then I was also a, a journalist. I think my my practice is really rooted in in journalism and trying to make things make sense of the art world and the politics and magical thinking aspects of the art world. Um, and so I ran Flash Art International for a few years and had kind of total control of of you know looking at the different ideas I was interested in uh, with you know guerrilla creative tactics and and so forth. So. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a quick survey. Aaron, are you still with Gagosian or did you? No, no, I I left there uh, end of 2016, uh, but you know I had this amazing experience there. Uh, whatever it, <clears throat> I was one of the first people that was hired just to do curatorial work uh, and make group shows. You know they hire a lot of curators. That are in there as academics and artist liaisons and and so forth, writing texts and working with artists. But I really was brought in to make group exhibitions, and and so I did. Uh, I just I popped out a number of group shows uh, across the the different uh, locations of the gallery, and and that was an incredible uh, uh, opportunity because uh, one for one I was never credited. Um, and I, I really appreciated that. Nothing I did at Gagosian said curated by Aaron Moulton, which was an incredibly liberating thing to kind of drop the ego in relationship to these ideas. And then to see a global brand like Gagosian pushing out my ideas as if they're generically coming from that brand kind of made everything I was doing seem that much more uh, potent. And uh, and then on top of that, what I was doing was was very edgy stuff, for especially for that brand. A lot of my first spiritual exhibitions and and sort of anthropological experiments are are you know happening there and on this global stage it's funny that just kind of links to your work with the soros project because sometimes we don't know who's behind the curation and so i think we can talk about that later but i wanted to go back a little bit and maybe you sent me an arc of your i guess career or some of your installations that you're proud of and kind of represent your work i wanted to start with the haunted house i really liked that video in Utah. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And I have some questions about it as well. Yeah. Well, I, it's, it's hard to explain these things where they come from. Cause I, I, I have a, I've learned to accept the mystery of, of my own creative practice. Uh, but certain things that I've done have very much come out of, uh, what we maybe arguably call midlife crises. I've had many midlife crises. And, uh, and in that moment that I was making that I was about to have my first child and uh, and I was uh, had taken over this institution that was, uh, you know, very remote uh, in Salt Lake City. Uh, there was no chance of anyone ever coming to see the work that I was doing. Uh, and and yet, like, I, I kind of took that as a as a carte blanche to go as hard as I could, despite that issue of, of you know, because that can be a soul crushing thing. If we think, you know, you're all this work you're doing, especially the art world which is a very ego driven place about visibility and so forth. And the conversation you're making uh, when you know that no one's going to see it, what does it all mean? <clears throat> and when you think of Salt Lake city um, as a cultural place, 
most everyone 100% of the time thinks of Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty. And, um, and that is the, the biggest gift and curse of that cultural landscape, because it's literally the reason most people go to, to see art there in Salt Lake. And it's usually the only thing they go to see. And so, uh, and, and that was my big lure to get people to, to participate in what I was doing was like, I would say, I'd take you to the spiral jetty. And, uh, and so I would, I was, uh, taking regular trips to the spiral jetty, uh, maybe once a month. And, and every trip I would take would be with somebody who'd been waiting their whole life to see that thing. And, and I won't forget what it was like for me that first time I saw it. And, uh, and every trip I took, I tried to put myself in their shoes and have that experience with them. And every time I saw it, it was different. I have to say it was, it was submerged, there was snow, or there was, there was any number of reasons that it was a fundamentally different experience. And yet the thing that we think about when we think about Robert Smith and Spiral Jetty is the, the, the Gorgone photograph from the, you know, the time that it was made and from uh, John Franco Gorgone, which is the most popular image that's circulated of the spiral jetty, and uh, and I and I always thought about that um, that contrast of this image, which is the archetypal image in everybody's mind of this unchanging monolithic form out there in the most remote of landscapes, and then I'm seeing this thing every day changing, 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 and and I and I and it became like a, a parable for me uh, that leads me to making that exhibition and uh because i i, I started to think about um a couple of things we were just starting to use this term anthropocene uh this is in early 2012 and uh and thinking about the the human impact on the landscape uh and the conditions that we're going to create ultimate kind of collapse of ecological conditions and i just started to think about how fragile the white cube is, you know, this place that is a timeless, odorless, context-free, monolithic white church that holds these objects in a, you know, with with uh, with conservators kind of keeping them from changing and, and all these things that ultimately these impossible games we're playing, uh, trying to beat the clock and, uh, you know, it's like Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill. And and I just started to ask myself these questions of what is, what happens when the lights go out when the when the when the electricity gets pulled or when there's a catastrophe, uh, a lot of you know just great questions of of you know, how quickly priceless can become worthless and um, and and I and I thought about the jetty a lot, almost like a metaphor for my my existence in Salt Lake City. And I started to think about uh, just finding a place that, you know, if, if, if I'm making work in a place that no one can see it, why don't I make work in a place that no one will ever see it? Because they won't know where it is. And uh, I'll make it in an undisclosed location. I'll make it in a place and in a frame that um, where things are in perpetuity falling apart in a very... Uh, obvious and organic way, and 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 in Salt Lake and in Utah, rather, you have a number of of almost and former civilizations and places that are whispers from getting swallowed into the earth. I went on a quest to find the perfect kind of ghost town or undisclosed location, and 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 so that was part of it. You know, I would just take these these jaunts into the nowhere, um, and then uh, and then I, I and I was at the you know, 
this amazing point in my career where uh, I had the, you know, the greatest thing a curator has is their net network. Of course, it's their ideas and their ability to kind of guide the wind of culture through, you know, their divining principles and creating context, but you're nothing without artists. And, um, and so I, uh, I always prided myself on having the trust of uh, artists. And, uh, and so I started reaching out to artists that I thought could tap into these ideas I was thinking about in making a project that had, <clears throat> it was a one way street. It was, you were going to give me work and it was never going to return to you. And, um, and it was going to go up in a, in a house uh, that was never going to have context. And, uh, and I, and I break my work down, everything I do, I break into patterns. I, I try to create these spectrums, a full anthropological spectrum of a cultural condition. And so the, um, the exhibition is called each memory recalled must do some violence to its origins. And this is a, this is a quote from Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, uh, in a, a pivotal moment when the man who's thread, treading through this uh, dire landscape with his son, he's um, trying to carry uh, with him the light, uh, which is the light of civilization and the, the, the light that will keep his son believing in, in the possibilities of mankind uh, in, in the face of a world where people are starting to go become cannibals and kill each other and rape each other and uh, and he's telling his son these stories every night as they go to bed and uh and they're stories from the good old days and and his son will go to sleep and and most of the book is monologue if you haven't read it so it's the thoughts in this man's head and after the boy goes to sleep he he reflects on this thing that he's doing of going through his memories and he says to himself, each memory recalled must do some violence to its origins. And so by this act of remembering, uh, you are destroying the memory. Every memory uh, gets, gets whittled away uh, each time we, we start to synthesize it into core details. And eventually we, we forget all the, the decorative elements to just remember a symbol of whatever that memory represents. And so this house became that, became the jetty, became this thing for me that I thought I'll I'll make this exhibition. I set all these things up. All these artworks had relationships to, you know, hobo shamanism and, uh, and, and ideas of, of mark making uh, from the Lascaux Caves to, you know, hobo graffiti, um, ideas of cult, um, cult practices, just all the things that you might find in, uh, in a place like that, in a in a in a in an abandoned home, like you know, like even the references to satanic panic and so forth, and uh, and and so I set all these artworks up, and 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 they really did run. Each one had an incredible story that no one will ever know because there was no context. I set everything up, and then I ran a film through it, which is what you saw, and ultimately that's this perfectly suspended you know, a uh, moment of time when the show is at its most perfect, but it's as if I've just discovered it, you know, as if I'm that innocent Mormon boy with strong religious beliefs and superstitions who's stumbled upon potentially the devil's lair or some incredible vortex of, of cultural patterns. And, uh, and then, uh, but then there's the reality of this place that it looks nothing like that, video 
what you see. If all, all, everything's been swallowed by the earth or by donkeys that have gone through there. You know, one of the artworks actually successfully destroyed an entire half of the house. Um, and so this idea of recalling the memory of the house, looking at that video, every time you look at that video, you're killing that house a little bit. You're destroying the memory of that house, even though we get constantly this perfect representation, something like that Gianfranco Gorgoni photograph of the spiral jetty. Aaron, have you visited the house recently or what's the status of the house now? I went there during coronavirus uh, two years ago, three years ago. And the house is special. It's a um, it's a pioneer. It's a it's a Danish pioneer home. There's a, about seventeen thousand Danish people that were successfully proselytized by the Mormon Church and who came over in the late eighteen hundreds, and settled in that area where the house is. And so I can tell you for certain that it was a house built by uh, Danes in search of the future, and um, and the, the so the original settler home is intact uh there was aspects that were built onto it that you see in the video which are the most declining aspects uh like um and there's uh the, the, in particular there's one room which is like completely fucked uh where the roof is blown out and uh, it's falling it's dangerous to be it was it was a dangerous thing to be in that room um and one of the artists his project was to build a new room, to put a new addition into that room and jack that ceiling up and give it some new, uh, you know, uh, uh, two by fours and give it a new space, a fresh coat of paint and so forth. And uh, and by doing that, that artist, Adam Bateman, completely upset the equilibrium of entropy of the, the, whole, man, house. Of the whole house. And so about two years later in 2014, it, in a very snow snowy season, half the house collapsed, and uh, and then uh, uh, but before that happened, I know the place was discovered by lots of people. Uh, mind you, there's nothing to identify anything in there as art. This is going to be one of the first times I stop using the word art because I can't control the way the word is used. Um, and that's and that's a very fundamental thread that runs through my practice, the way in which we use that word um, to consciously create, you know, perceptions of the object and its relationship to reality. There was no way that I could preserve the context or hold the uh, uh, the sign to anyone's belief that this is art or the the rave, the, the materialistic ravings of a lunatic or or what have you. So. Um, there was clear evidence in the first two years before that roof, before that half of the house collapsed, that people had been in there, they had messed with it, they had they had uh, stolen things, they had um, uh, they had, and eventually they had put made it inaccessible, put barbed wire around the entrance that was the main entrance that I would go in, so I'd have to go in the side entrance and. Uh, and yeah, uh, you know, so there was this this thing had happened. The legend of the house, as if you will, was existing and positive uh, in the community. I've never heard locals talk about it, but that's not the point. My imagination convinces me that they do. <laughs> it's funny because one of the quotes, I think you talk about the looting of museums during the invasion of Iraq. So I'm just yeah. wondering how that fits into this context here. Is that one of your themes, I guess, looting and interacting mm -hmm. with the decayed? Space? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the first thing that happened when we 
uh, when we invaded Iraq was they they looted the museums. Who looted the museums? The, the Iraqis, the American military, who knows? But what did happen was the, the, the prestige of the platform of these museums quickly fell apart and these uh, objects quickly lost their meaning uh, in some cases. And in other cases, they became priceless in a different way. But this, uh, this shift in, in a basic semantic way of priceless to worthless, I really, I really like that. Um, there's another work in the show, which is, I think, the most one of the most important ones for me in terms of thought experiments, um, which is by Constant Dullart. Again, you'll never know any of these things because nothing's labeled, but um, it's in the basement. There's a there's an adjacent uh, space that is uh, underground, and it's like the the refrigerator basement for the old time house. And in it, um, Constant asked me to. The way the way this worked is I I told every artist I would give them fifty dollars production budget or a one way FedEx and uh, and so in the case of Constant Dillard he sent me a link on eBay for um, forgeries of like souvenirs you might buy at the Ming Dynasty museums fake authentic ceramics that you could get at the Ming Dynasty museum in China and he asked me to buy those smash them and bury them and I did. And the idea is that you, by displacing an artifact like that, you create, uh, from an archaeological point of view, a potential narrative that'll make people believe, oh, shit, the, the Chinese have already been here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're like upsetting the anthropological record. And, and that will fix, that fits into your hoax work later on, I think, with your yeah. Beverly Hills um, creation. Um, I'm just wondering, are you... You know, if I was a, let's say a 14 year old boy in that town and they discovered this place, I mean, could you imagine how cool it is? You're walking through here and it literally looks like you're entering the gates of hell or this hobo world or this underground kind of meth addict kind of aesthetic. I'm just curious, somewhere you said that you were really interested in exploring abandoned spaces as a child. Is that yeah. part of your goal in this piece? Or Oh, definitely. Definitely. Dude, like my whole practice is, is, is born out of like adolescent um fantasies um you know i i'm a child of the 80s and and i was i was brought up believing honestly being promised especially by popular culture that there were just tons of mysteries out there to be discovered i mean if you ever watched goonies or indiana jones uh those became evangelical promises uh, in terms of how i saw the world and ultimately you begin to realize that maybe those things aren't there uh that if you want to find those things you maybe have to create them and uh and so you know that's where the game kind of begins and and i and i and i kind of shy i shy away from you know naming things like hoax or like i'm a trickster um these things have built into them uh judgment about my intentions and uh and, and a desire to fool people and, you know, in fooling people, somebody's being treated badly and I'm laughing and it's not like that. You know, I believe in magic and I believe most magic manifests itself in the human mind. And I want to help that through stories and helping create evidence of potentiality in stories. No, I think it's, it's really interesting. I think that work is such at a personal level. So I think we could keep talking about that, but maybe we can shift towards your piece, the Americana Esoterica, because I think yeah, that's yeah. when you start curating and trying to really 
kind of push in a not an agenda but push meaning out in a in a clearer way i think the first one your your haunted house is kind of a discovery it feels more personal and then you start shifting into kind of a uh, maybe if I'm reading it wrong, but you're feeling like you're entering into a larger community. So I, maybe yeah. we can talk about that. It's, they're very similar. These works in terms, these uh, exhibitions in terms of their intentions and, you know, think about the haunted house. That's a story we've told ourselves since time immortal, that there are architectural spaces that, you know, possess uh, that are possessed that have the, the former uh, occupants or or a spirit or an evil you know entity uh, occupying them these these stories are constantly in our face and we're told them so much and we tell ourselves them so much that every bump in the night can like in a great like that pareidolia way in which we see shapes in the clouds we're going to s- believe that that's that ghost that we were told was there and um and so it's it kind of is rooted in this this uh these these stories we tell ourselves and americana esoterica uh is a is a real shift both you know there there are a few shows uh i've done i mean to, i would say about 10 where i'm in a new place of like in, invocation and divination uh where i feel energy that i've never felt before from as a, from a creative point of view and creating community, creating things like conversion experience from tapping into like spiritual energy uh, that I can't explain. And it sucks to put words on these things because that only damages my own uh, great memories of them. But, um, but Americana Esoterica, like the undisclosed location was happening in a remote place in Plovdiv, Bulgaria, where no one was going to see the show. Um, and I was at a peak uh, moment of uh, fame uh, and visibility in my career where it was just extremely weird to go uh, and and do a big project with big names like Sterling Ruby and Mike Boucher and Max Hooper Schneider um, and uh, and go to this uh, this place in the middle of nowhere in the middle of you know former Soviet Union and uh, and and this was supposed by the State Department. Um, as that a, was one of the a, things that really stood out to me when I was looking at the catalog of the show. And the last page has that American flag. And yeah. then the, the opening date of September 11th. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, I, I saw it. And um, I was just, well, we'll fit into your later work. So, I, I, yeah, if you can elaborate on that, I think it's interesting. So, I was invited to do this uh, as a headliner project as a part of an arts festival um, called Museum Night, which, you know, all cities do. And um, and a, a, a longtime colleague of mine runs the Museum Night in, Blo- in Plovdiv, and it's the biggest art festival in Bulgaria. And, um, and Plovdiv is this incredible city that I'd been to before that I had felt energy in, like I can't explain. Uh, I'm a very sensitive person to energy, cultural energy. And uh, and uh, <clears throat> and she asked me, knowing that, you know, I would be a great uh, PR coup for her uh, as a, you know, curator of Gagosian that I could get big names and all these things um, to, you know, to do a, do a project, but there's going to be no budget. Uh, but, you know, there's a promise of money from the State Department. And, 
and it just has to have American artists. And so my pitch to the State Department was that I'm going to show a bunch of artists from California. And that was literally all I said to them. That was it, my whole proposal. And, uh, and, and I felt I didn't have to explain anything further than that. And yet I knew I was going to do something unlike anything I'd ever done because the conditions were so perfect. You know, working at Gagosian, there are no budgets. I don't have anything to worry about in terms of whatever I spend. It just doesn't matter. And then suddenly you're given a budget of $5,000 to do an international show. Um, I was able to raise another 5,000 on top of that. And, uh, and I, I basically, and then, and then the date was September 11th. I mean, give me a break. Uh, so I, I, I right away had this, uh, of like a premonition of this, 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 I was interested in, in, in esoterica in a big way, uh, from my time in Utah. And, uh, and so Americana Esoterica, um, was this thing that just happened for me as a name and, um, and what to say, really, we were, this is 2015, 20, late 2014, I start planning this. We are not culturally talking about conspiracy theory at this time. That's not a thing that people are talking about. Donald Trump has not even close to have been elected yet. Uh, so there's, it's, it's a very innocent moment in where people's thinking is at with regards to conspiracy theory. Certainly it exists and it's out there. And there were conspiracies that I was trying to, reference within my work in that but i uh, i was i think in a very early place looking at how to weaponize conspiracy theory as a storytelling device and um and back to this idea of the stories we tell ourselves to the point that we're expecting them um i know what a prophecy looks like i know what a prophet looks like i know what we want that shit to look like and i know how to make and set the tone to uh create believability and the strongest way to do that is if i embody it you know if i allow myself to seem vulnerably at the fringes of of a psychosis or vision or prophecy or whatever i allowed myself to become this like avatar of belief because i knew that if if i believed it then it's pretty likely other people are going to believe it too and and i certainly had the artists on board so suddenly boom we are a coven of true believers and uh and then you know and then from then on it's all mediation and framing in terms of how anyone saw or understood what the show was it was this very controlled mediated experience that i released onto the world in, in my view of what this thing was however uh and that's and that sounds like the game and me creating the hoax but something happened there in bulgaria and it's very hard to explain um because we did go there consciously in a state of ecstasy playing a game and playing hard with uh uh understanding the codes that we were inventing uh but th suddenly those codes became like real in how we were interacting like weird you know uh there's a thing i do this hail roco thing uh hail roco is a reference to roco's basilisk so i'm helping to kind of uh worship this voice of Jesus, if you believe in Roko's Basilisk, Roko is Jesus, who's helping understand God. And um, so Hail Roko is a way to have this uh, blessing um, movement. And then in, uh, on live TV and in other uh, situations, I was doing this hand gesture, which is uh, not a, uh, not something I made up. That's a, that's a, that's from like comedic esoteric ritual practice that's then becomes 
secret Freemason ritual that then becomes secret Mormon ritual practice. And it's the, uh, this, uh, uh, in Mormonism, it's uh, this movement of the hands starting up and coming down. And you say, oh God, hear the words of my mouth. Oh God, hear the words of my mouth. Oh God, hear the words of my mouth. But I was just saying, hell Rocco. So there, there was this this thing, this uh, we can call it LARPing, if you want, because that's the way to make it make sense. But you, you, something does happen when you drink your own Kool-Aid uh, that these things start to become very meaningful. Uh, you, uh, while you know you're playing a game, so at some point the game starts to play you. And, uh, and, and I was in a state uh, that I can't truly explain. And uh, and we were engaged in rituals that made everything that much more consecrated and real, and and the exhibition became this um, this vortex or this locus point for all these energies that we were trying to manifest, and um, and everyone around us bought it, you know. And I don't mean to say that like I tricked them, but it only helped us believe in ourselves and what we were doing, because. The State Department people bought it so much so it was uh, scary for them because they, like I said, I didn't tell them. I gave them this brief proposal, and then and then suddenly three days before the opening, they saw the press release, which is a full on uh, tipped, you know, uh, prophecy. It's like a very fringy prophecy uh, about how we're we're here to ward off uh, an apocalypse and create a spiritual awakening, but it was a very well-written prophecy and, and how we, uh, this band of, of, of lunatics and artists and shaman, we're going to combine our powers and, uh, and create a, uh, a superstitious event that will help uh, prevent a, a, a nuclear Holocaust of mediocrity or something. And, um, and it didn't work. And so uh, the uh, but the, the State Department people suddenly I got a call from the embassy. Three days before the opening, and they were like, um, hey, can you tell us what's going on? Because I think it's important you, the curator, are very clear with us right now, uh, because they thought I was probably maybe 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 a terrorist or something. This was not cool that I'm like taking September 11th and treating it like a sacred ritual you know and uh and to do this thing that's truly about american esoter americana esoterica and uh and so i know how to code switch really well and of course i was going to just smooth that over and be like relax guys i'm playing a role and this is a uh, a way to create a very uh, believable situation um so i'm working with the language of conspiracy theory to manufacture a hoax and uh, and but through these, you know, languages, it will trigger ideas of magical thinking. And uh, but it's but it's an art show. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just an art show, guys. And um, and and they were like, phew. And then but then they came and I had to give a tour to the ambassador and all their people. And uh, and they were uneasy, uh, visibly uneasy with the whole thing. And um and and the show was fucking awesome. I mean, I was in, I was on fire. I was like on, like daytime. I was on live TV. I was on all kinds of things that was just like making this thing the most successful use of their money ever for American culture, honestly, in Bulgaria. And um, 
but they were uneasy about it because it became out of their hands in terms of something they thought they could control. Um, and then, uh, and then, and then this was the first time I had, um, this is, I, I don't, well, anyways, there were, there were, there were, uh, there were watchers. There were people in the audience that were uh, undercover that were watching me and like following me and, uh, and talking to me and uh, yeah. And, uh, and that became, so self-fulfilling as a part of my prophecy that, you know, I was going to rattle the cage and bring out the spooks and there they were at my opening. And, 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 and you know, I, it's, it's hard to explain. It all became so uh, like self-fulfilling on so many levels. And then on top of that, you know, I was, I, and I'm with these artists, you know, I'm bouncing. It's not like I'm in this lunatic state uh, by myself. I've got all these people around me who I'm, I'm like trying to reality check with constantly and uh, and and a, and a lot of my work is in in terms of anthropology is rooted in participatory anthropology, so uh, that is you know authoring a cosmology that you are you know it's like observing a cosmology but also authoring aspects of it. In my case, I'm fully authoring the cosmology, but I'm inhabiting it. I'm a, I'm a citizen of this world that I've created, and I've got like you know homies within that, and uh, and we've created almost like a conversion like experience of a community, a temporary autonomous zone. And, um, and it's, and it's temporary. These, these things only last, you know, for, a, you know, a little bit. And then we go back, I'll go back home and, and live to tell the tale. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, you have to cut me off. I can. No, Aaron, this is uh, fantastic because you're, you're capturing so much of, I mean, if you know the history of the CIA, the OSS, I mean, they've always been on the borderline with the occult and they have definitely used, <laughs> I mean, you could bring up, I, I'd love for you to talk about the imperialistic aspects of this show. I mean, you're literally exporting a California aesthetic into, you know, a developing country. And that's why the State Department was excited about your brief, right? Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and then they're trying to control how that export process goes, but you never can. So there's a lot of layers to see your, I just think it's fascinating that you talk about it at such at a personal level. And then for me, never experiencing the show, I keep just looking at that U.S. Embassy, even though their budget was only 5000 I mean, what a return on their soft power. Or like you said, it's insane. Best, dude. I mean, I, they, you know, they continue to support. I, I went back and gave a lecture, uh, the best lecture I had given up until that point about contemporary art and divination, where I reveal all these tactical methods of, of trying to force magical thinking out of the, you know, the cracks of the mind. And, uh, and I gave that lecture at the American corner in Sofia, which is a, a literal psyop, like soft power American psyop for, you know, helping further the word of democracy in these former Soviet places. I don't know if you know the history of American corners, but um, but yeah, you know, I continue to get support from them, even though I'm like a gray hat hacker kind of person. I um, I'm I'm a. You know, yeah, and 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 I am criticizing imperialism in all of this. You know, I am playing a game based on a game that they taught me uh, effectively. Yeah, but even when you go under, you're still a spook, right? <laughs> you're acting in their interest, so that's what's so interesting. You you participate in the, like you said, the participatory anthropology. So it's hard to escape and separate that out. So that's why I think the effect was so great on you as well and on the community. So it's just very interesting, very. Uh, yeah, I really love the brief and it, it links exactly to like the Mormonism and the American frontier and 
aspects of proselytizing. Very, yeah, it's great. Even some of the language you kept talking about uh, gravity rainbows and iridium wafers and UV gel. It's all those kind of loaded terms that I, I guess emerge in American Western spiritualism kind of feeling, right? Dude. Well, and it's funny because, you know, also what you don't, uh, unless, and again, this is early, early language of, you know, conspiracy theory now is so mainstream. It's literally like, you don't have a conversation with anybody nowadays that doesn't have a tinge of conspiracy theory to it. Uh, this was, this was foreign language at this point. So we were really trying to look at this language anthropologically. I, I tried to highlight five or six of what I saw as the biggest, most amazing conspiracy theories out there that ranged from like folklores, like internet folklores, like Rokos Basilisk to um, Jade Helm and, and, and whatever. And, uh, but the, the text, when you see it in, cause you've seen the book, um, the text is in, uh, is in green text, uh, which is a way is a, is a classic paranoid prophecy text that you'd see on early web 1.0 websites where um, they're, you know, all the words are, you know, specific words are highlighted. And then this one's really important. It's, it's a uh, all caps and underlined and parts of the word are caps, you know, it creates all this codification of language that um, we were, we were riffing, you know, but now when I look at it, it's so prophetic uh, what the message of that text was and the way we were uh, revealing it. Um, Aaron, maybe we can shift since this had a really personal effect on you. I'd love to talk about the, I'm going to mispronounce this, but the Trito Irisitori. And in yeah, that Trito. one, I think yeah. you had a quote that you said, art's aboriginal function is a vehicle for spirituality. Yeah. And then it becomes secularized and turned into some type of commercial image porn. Talk about that show and maybe the shift and kind of how you went more commercial or more personal or what the shift was there in that experience. Well, so imagine that maybe I went into the Americana Esoterica trying to create a game that I was having fun with. And I came out of that game now believing it, you know, like I, it, it wasn't like I came out and I was like, I want to play another game. I was like, I need to, I, I learned something. I, I, I evolved in a way that I was uncomfortable with. And, um, and I, I reached a new place in my understanding of what I could do in, in storytelling and creating um, context. And so, and I am a big believer in, in divination and invocation. And, and if you allow the door to open, messages will come in. They will. Um, it's a fact. You can do that through meditation. A transcendental meditation is a, a way I've come up with so many ideas. Um, but also, of course, you know, uh, psychedelics, um, but dialogue. I've, I've had, I've been gifted to and blessed to have incredible dialogue with amazing artists. And, and I've always pursued uh, esoteric ideas, you know, that I, um, the, I, I don't know how, you know, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It feels old hat nowadays because everyone's kind of looking for dark corners. But, um, but things that, you know, where language was, uh, un uncomfortably not sticking or we just weren't having words and uh and so and so much of my work is about um pattern recognition and apophenia you know identifying patterns uh, i mean literally curatorial practice is uh, if you look at it syntactically 
it's forming sentences with objects and telling stories through that and uh and and, and it's trying to make sense of of culture uh trying to synthesize which way the wind is blowing and 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 you've got this clear consensus of objects that correspond to your idea that the wind might be blowing that way and um and, and you know that you can you can really form a sentence and and say make a poem no one's ever said before um and uh and all these things i believe um the cumulative power of these objects has a grand effect uh i believe that the uh exhibition is uh an, a language of uh not dissimilar from the altar uh and not uh at all unlike a ritual space it's just we have accepted that the um that art the art world and the white cube is like a conceptual space and and spirituality has been traded for um well nowadays identity you know identitarianism is the new spirituality um but before that when we think of like pre-2016 uh, all of our history is is a lot of experimenting with uh, green zones of madness and uh, fringes of language and um, but never really acknowledging its origins in religion uh, maybe playing a game with religion sure but always done with irony in mind um, safe making it safely kind of a critique of what is considered an ignorant uh, aspect of, of human creativity, this idea of believing in God or so forth. And I'm not, I was, my parents are not religious. I don't have a religious background, but I became, I became a zealous uh, spiritual seeker, a spiritual activist, if you will. And so the, when Americana Esoterica finished, I was immediately trying to figure out how to make sense of what I had learned and how to make it go to a new place. And so the Trito Satori kind of came to me in a vision, um, but it was, uh, the, the idea is it was to create an occult system based on understandings of occult systems and making a pattern, like an archetypal occult system. And the most common pattern of occult and religious systems is the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, uh, the black, white, and the red. Um, and uh and and so and i tried to write the classic uh hero's tale of of starting from darkness we 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 see the light and uh and try to reach the light um and never can reach this this light but through our origins in the darkest of uh of a hell or a, you know a place where man's pursuit is blood and murder and sex to knowing something greater a supreme being you understand the path uh, that's the essential narrative of any spiritual awakening and um and so i tried to make my own version of that and and i treated uh there were the this tritor satori was three exhibitions each exhibition was treated like a ritual uh each exhibition was the embodiment of an archetypal energy system so black was darkness was evil was the boogeyman was the personification the boogeyman so it was called omo negru because the boogeyman is the most universal personification of evil that we have across culture and um and then the light 
I didn't want it to be about good, uh, but about something unattainable, uh, supreme light, supreme energy, and that's the sun. Uh, that uh, I'm, I'm going to simplify these things because I was in a place that I can't explain in terms of creating a system. Um, but um, but the basilisk for me remains an important story of uh, idea of God. Uh, Rocco's basilisk, through the ba the basilisk. One one thing I've always been interested in, especially with the way that uh, AI is going. But I was talking about this back in 2015. Aaron, sorry to interrupt. Do you know about the Dark Night of the Soul? No, 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 no. In no. Buddhist or even in Catholicism, there's an element on your trip in religiosity and spirituality when you event, you know, you have the, have the positive, uplifting. It's the same thing when people take ayahuasca. Sometimes they get destabilized, right? And that's called the dark night of the soul. You hit this point where all the energies are coming in and you get kind of destabilized a little bit. I wonder, was this point in your kind of the first, you know, the, your show, the American Esoterica was a euphoric uplift. And then you, you're you starting to enter some of these other kind of darker energies. Where you, What were you doing? What was your soul like personally at that point of the, the next show, this show, the Trito Esatorio? Were you having some kind of I don't know, yeah. stabilization or not? Well, you know, what you have to understand is this, the way that art exhibitions work typically as they are, uh, you know, about things. They are, um, you know, you don't often have exhibitions that are true embodiments and in fact, the manifestation of evil. You will have things that are about evil, about fear, but to have something that has actual evidence, residue, uh, and materialization of evil itself is another thing uh, that's more related to anthropology and ritual and and un very 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 uncomfortable things that people are not prepared for even the atheist. And so I, um, with the evil show especially, uh, yeah, I, I was in an incredibly special place, allowing myself to f go as hard and as fast as I could to the bottom, scratching scratching for the bottom and uh and uh but i i was enabled you know this is i'm i'm my 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 ability to keep one foot in reality and know that i'm i'm paid to do this you know and this is my creativity that's enabled and this isn't like i'm i'm a psychopath i'm a i'm an auteur or some shit and um you know i, I do keep one foot in reality all the time uh, I'm a, I, I, I fundamentally believe in everything and nothing at once, you know, uh, because you need to. Otherwise, you can lose your mind when you start to go deep into conspiracy theory and, and these kinds of things. And so. Um, uh, so Omo Negro is very uncomfortable for people uh, because it's not just like, oh, I had some goth gnarly <clears throat> photos that of blood or some shit it had actually we did animal sacrifice i sac we sacrificed a, uh, a goat we did a summoning of ed gain using actual effects from ed gain the original amazing boogeyman inspiration of silence of the lambs texas chainsaw massacre and psycho from plainsfield wisconsin who was the most prolific body snatcher ever ed gain uh i was able on a, to find on a murderabilia website the effects of Ed Gain, like dirt from his grave, dirt from where his house stood, things he touched, his birth certificate, his death certificate, his fingerprints from when he was booked, you know, all these things. I had the fucking touch of Ed Gain on my hands. 
and um and then uh and then i had john wayne gacy painting pogo the clown you know these these are real things these aren't these aren't no the, you know child's play is over when you start to have these things people you very quickly see the atheist become an agnostic when you show them these things um they're they they all all people's fronts of like whatever confidence they have in relationship to whatever they think is real or not or scary or not they all become universal um in, Aaron, in moments like what was the trinity holding the light and the dark in balance um in this show well, you said there was three parts yeah it's the path uh it's the hierophant and and so there were these these three personifications. So Omo Negru is the manifest is the boogeyman manifestation or personification of darkness. Basilisk is Roko's basilisk, but it's also I was interested in this idea of a of uh, of a universal aesthetic experience, which Medusa or the basilisk gives this idea of everything it looks at turns to stone. That to me is a universal aesthetic experience. Uh, it's a weaponization of aesthetics. And uh, and something that I think artificial intelligence will figure out very soon, uh, a simple pattern that's going to freeze all our minds. Um, and then the third thing was the path, uh, the person like the Freemason who understands the dark and the light uh, is the red, the blood of the, the individual who understands the knowledge. And, uh, and that's the Hierophant, which is a card within the tarot deck. And that's the person who reveals to us the sacred. And so in that show, it was like a different personifications of characters that we depend on for understanding the sacred. So the shaman, the occultist, the, the charlatan. Um, it's, I, I treated that show like a, like a major arcana deck of cards, you know, in terms of revealing lots of different personalities. Uh, yeah. One thing, uh, are you still there? Oh, sorry, Aaron. I was asking, what was the feedback to the show like? Well, I don't, I mean, what to say, really? I don't, I mean, uh, maybe your personal level. What was your internal, what you go through the show? What's the, you're on your hero's journey. What, how do you feel at the spiritual level or curatorial practice? Yeah, the... no, that's, I'm happy you asked that, you know, if, okay, so the, the public feedback was great. Uh, I got like, back to back reviews in the LA Times for the Basilisk, which I don't think that I'd ever seen that in the history. I mean, they've done that in the past when a controversial show happens, they'll do they'll have multiple writers write about it. Um, but I got two major features one day after the other about my show, questioning the role of art as a vehicle for spirituality. One being a very conservative, cynical take that I'm, you know, being cynical, uh, which of course was not true, um, but they found it so hard to believe I could be serious. Um, and then the other was Carolina Miranda's really amazing review where she interviewed me and she listened to me and, and really took to heart the things that I was saying and trying to do. And so anyways, that was really, um, I got tons of reviews for the Basilisk in LA and then I, um, I got, you know, the feedback I wanted, but it wasn't about that. I was on, uh, I was, I was uh, engaged in rituals and very empowered in this creation of temporary autonomous zones and, uh, and, and artists allowing me to purpose and directionalize their work for 
things that they didn't intend that stuff to be for and uh, and you know it treating it like you know ritual uh artifacts within an altar and um and the last ritual which happened in the hierophant was the baptism ritual and and i actually uh baptized myself i didn't uh, i was baptized you know so it was like i had created a cult and then baptized myself within it as this kind of last thing and uh and it, saying that now it's it sounds so easy to say that you can't even imagine what it was like to build that uh uh there were eight rituals each one a, a kind of wonderfully successive uh building of a vocabulary that led to this ultimate baptism of myself on exactly a year to the day that we are summoning Ed Gain. Um, and, you know, it's, it, and the, the, there's so many numerological things and incredible synchronicities within this show that I refuse to explain. I've mapped them out for myself, but you got to know that when the door is, when you leave the door open, the, the stuff comes in and you start to see these things, you know, and that's, that's the great, hilarity of apophenia you will see patterns if you start looking or if you relax your mind enough but but when they start to flow like a waterfall it's it's an incredible thing and uh and i i had real spiritual experience with with that work but i'll tell you the truthful tale of it is that it ruined my life on some level um my my career took a dramatic you know u-turn from from that point of the baptism and um and then, uh, and and I and I kind of went into a whole different place in terms of, you know, trying to um, fix things or create, you know, harder rituals and things like that. So, uh, you know, it. But the and and if you really take it from a spiritual point of view, um, when you deal with things like summoning and divination, leaving that door open, uh, most people, the church uh, especially, but anyone like clairvoyance and new age energy workers most everyone believes that if you open your door to to um summoning and uh exorcism and, and these kinds of things you're only going to get um a bad spirit and 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 a, and a curse and a bad luck situation and and i refuse to totally accept that that's the why my life shifted the way it did but definitely it's an undeniable fact that I played around with very, very dark energy and then my life shifted. It's funny linking to your next show, the, the homage to Hollis Benton, it almost seems like he created an alter ego to kind of dissipate some of that energy. Uh, I don't know if that's know, a wrong reading of it, but I'm just, you, you, you know, you're, you have a baptism and then you almost are reborn as a new you know, you, you have parts of your old life falling apart, but you have a new direction. It seems like that seems yeah. quite founded and strong. I mean, uh, you know, my wife, um, uh, my wife will tell you that that's the best exhibition I've ever made. It was the most, uh, um, it was the most beautiful and most kind of energetically positive, especially after all these other things, which, you know, she hated all of my magical work. Um, she just, it, it frightened her. She saw what it was doing to me. She, um, she believed it a lot, uh, maybe the most, um, cause she was my partner, uh, and, and she's was wanting me to just come back to earth with stuff and saw how hard I was going. And, 
I would reassure her, you know, it's, it's a game, you know, but I'm, I'm just, I need to go hard in this game. Um, well, that's why I asked about the dark night of the soul. So once you go through that, usually there's an optimism and a neutrality that kind of balances out after going through that darkness from at least the Buddhist perspective. Yeah. If you go on a long retreat, you have this intense shamanic kind of breakdown. And then when you rebuild, you might have, have parts of that, at least from the Buddhist or kind of monk Catholicism kind of viewpoint of that. So it's just because I also saw the positivity in that. Um, I forget the name of the art show, the LA one, the the not the hoax, but uh, what's the name of the title of that? The one the homage with, to Alice Benton, or yeah, yeah, that one, the Beverly Hills art. I mean, it's so positive. It's eighties. There's nothing that I saw that was dark in that. It just really seemed positive. Even your actor, he seems such a character and positivity. So I, I I saw in a lot of optimism, and maybe maybe didn't want to feel play around with those dark energies anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean it is. Definitely, uh, that is this this surface. I mean, it's uh, but in that show, I've got my my game is so down at that point. It's just if it's like if if you could imagine, I was trying, I was doing multiple things that year. That was like the most creatively uh, insane year of my life, twenty eighteen, and that project um, fit within a. a, a patchwork of things I was doing that were uh, quite elaborate thought experiments. Um, and uh, Aaron, sorry to interrupt. Maybe you could you give us a one sentence like summary of that art show just for people who don't haven't seen it yeah. or aren't familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. It's called An Homage to Hollis Benton. And the idea was it was a, uh, a it was rediscovering uh, an important figure from the L.A. art world that no one really remembered because he represented uh, a, 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 almost a counterculture to the LA art world that everyone knew. Uh, and he was uh, important during the 80s. He had his gallery in Beverly Hills. And um, and he was responsible for the careers of people that, that the mainstream art world never accepted, but who had an undeniable prominence, uh, like Leroy Neiman, Patrick Nagel, um, different kind of 80s voices that are managed to stick through time and yet the mainstream art world never accepts their existence and 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 but their 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 popularity is undeniable and um and Hollis Benton's story is uh was a fascinating one that made him the first person to kind of understand how to um, intersect uh, art, media, and Hollywood, and how to place his artists, not just in the context of the gallery, but on the big screen, and what agency that would, new agency that would create for the dispersion of the image into popular culture. So he was friends with famous filmmakers, uh, getting his artist works into movies like Wall Street, um, but also friends with uh, Hugh Hefner uh, and, um, and uh, was able to get Leroy Neiman this role as like artist in residence, which then less led also to Patrick Nagel's um, uh, presence at Playboy magazine as these these artists that really were the artists of Playboy. Um, these these connections came through Hollis Benton, and uh, and Hollis Benton was also very close with uh, the reason people will know of Hollis Benton's legacy is uh, unfortunately only through a reference in the movie Beverly Hills Cop, which is um, uh, a, a, um, which is actually, a, as a film, my first 
understanding of the art world um, is when I was a kid, uh, seeing Beverly Hills Cop uh, was the first time I saw whatever this art world thing was. And it was, a, and of course, Beverly Hills Cop, for anyone who doesn't know, is a parody. Uh, it's a it's a slapstick comedy about a, a black detective from Detroit, from the, the down and out city of Detroit, who goes to the rich and elitist Beverly Hills to solve a crime committed uh, by a gallerist. And uh, and so he a lot of the film is is Eddie Murphy confronting, you know, it's like high low stereotypes of Eddie Murphy laughing at contemporary art. What I will say, though, is um, all parody is a form of anthropology uh, at, at its core. And that film distilled for me, despite it's making a joke of, you know, the emperor's new clothes cliches that we have of contemporary art it became a way to understand a pattern and um and understand an idea of mediation and and ideas of 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 lofty conceptual uh narratives and whatever and um and so hollis benton lent his gallery to the set of beverly hills cop and it becomes this place where you see all the art that eddie murphy's making fun of and and um and i and and I have to, of course, now say that's all made up. I just made that whole story up. Everything. Told Aaron, I, not to interrupt you, but, you know, I almost was believing you there. Like, and the same thing, your documentary work, I guess, when you go into the show, it, you start believing it because you're you're very good at storytelling that character. So I was, <laughs> and you start zoning well, in to the storytelling. It's amazing, actually. You want that story. We've been told this, like, we want that story. That's the great thing. Coming back to the stories we want, that our world told us were out there, the mysteries that we wanted. We want to see these stories so bad to to give, give the art world the reason for Patrick Nagel and Leroy Neiman. Let's go, dude. I want to hear that story. And, uh, you know, and, and I got the people. So, you know, that whole thing, I just made that up. Everything I just told you, I made all that shit up. And that was... And I told people when I was making this show, I'm going to make a hoax. I was flat out direct about it. I was transparent as you get. Everyone I spoke to, I'm making an elaborate hoax about an art world from the 80s that didn't exist, but I'm going to do it really well and you'll believe it. And everyone would believe it. And they'd even, people I told, artists that were in the show that I that were in on it. You know, and 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 uh, and, and the, the, the cross, the moment it crossed this, undeniable threshold of potentiality and believability was I had my script, I had my story, I had everything, but I didn't really have Hollis Benton. I had the narr the references to Beverly Hills Cop. And then my wife was like, you should get Clem, our neighbor uh, at the time, to, to play Hollis Benton. And and that was this, this British guy who lived four doors down, who I dreaded running into uh clem is dead now i love the dude uh, we had a great bonding experience through this but my introduction to clem was this like d-rate actor who was always trying to rap with me about the art world and his name is clement von frankenstein his family heritage is actually of the mary shelley ilk uh, Fra clement von frankenstein is the frankenstein name and um and the dude would constantly, you know, harass me about, you know, gossip in the art world, working for Larry Gagosian, what was it like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, he was selling posters in, uh, in Venice Beach and he would trade these stories with me that I've heard a million times. And I was, and I, and I hated it to have to like, cause he was my neighbor and I just, I didn't want, I don't know. And, but he was a sweet guy. And then my wife's like, you should 
you should cast Clem as Hollis Benton. And I was like, holy fuck, honey, this is this is an archetype you have just nailed. This is the role that Clem has been waiting to play his whole life because I'm just going to have him play Clem. He's always been wanting to be this guy who who ran the scene. And like, and so I basically gave Clem my press release. I read it to him. We we went to a, a rich guy in the hills house as a location. And in the course of, we had four hours, three hours to shoot. I basically read the press release and had him repeat it back to me. And uh, and then we we shot it on a VHS camera, and um, and then you basically had this this found documentary uh, that we edited of Hollis Benton talking about you know in, in 1989 after he's closed the gallery before he dies of a drug overdose talking about this art world he created that had died with the uh, the financial market collapse of 88 89 and. Uh, and this doc, this fake documentary was what introduced the show. Next to it, we, we had posters that we made of original, like of old posters of shows curated by Hollis Benton or posters from the gallery that were, of course, not real. But once you see shit like that and you see the documentary, I've swept your leg. But more than that, let's make it even, I'm going to double it. Not only did I have fake artifacts and a fake documentary, I had the original painting from Beverly Hills Cop that Eddie Murphy stands in front of for, for like, for, you know, for 10 seconds. It's a, I found this painting. I threw forensic through like my, my journalistic, you know, desires. I, I looked through the details of Beverly Hills Cop and found out who the actual artists were within that gallery environment. And most of them were Hollywood set designers. And then there was this one guy, uh, Don Sorensen, who was an artist of the 80s who died of AIDS in 86 and uh and had lent four works to that set and uh and I found an old website of Don Sorensen I contacted the info at over and over again eventually his brother reached out to me and was like yeah I got those paintings they're in a storage locker in San Diego and boom I had all the original paintings from Beverly Hills Cop. So, and then I, on top of that, once I had Clem and a real Hollis Benton character, I had Jonas Wood do a portrait of him. Once Jonas Wood, an artist of that stature, does a portrait of this guy, this might or might not exist guy, he's fucking real. I've done everything to manifest a real Bigfoot in everyone's face. So, uh, and then, you know, and then I just had to... Um, and then I filled it out. You know, I just, it was all candy coated, you know, stuff that felt decadent. It felt 80s. It felt, you know, some of it was 80s. Some of it was like out of place, you know. I mean, I don't, you know, it's, it, it was really, it was one of the funnest shows I ever made because once I had this structure, it became the most flexible thing you could imagine, even though it was technically very strictly about Beverly Hills in the 80s and, you know, all this stuff. Uh, it became an endless opportunity. And and in that opportunity are tons of occult things, uh, rituals that I that are not worth explaining, but that are about invocation and uh, and, and 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 recursive uh, recursive things that are things I've I've been you know always been exploring. Uh, but how do you turn a re how do you turn a reality kind of into itself. Um, I don't know no, Aaron, I, I, I think it's great. It's a point in your career where I start seeing your shift towards, I think later on you call it direct 
action aesthetics, you're actually trying to manipulate the viewer really consciously. And maybe we can talk about the documentary work. I think it's green screen caliphate. I mean, there's a lot of darker elements with Al-Qaeda and whatnot, but the LA show, you really try to, we use that word hyperstition, but you've created a reality. So I'm curious how that fits into well, what you're doing now and or that documentary work. And let me tell you something, that Hollis Benton show to this day, I have people come up to me and thank me for showing that history, for revealing that history. And there's not a single person I let, I'll let them say whatever they want. Uh, but I, my intention was to, of course, always tell people this was a hoax. And I tell them right away, this was a hoax, man. I appreciate you believing it. I've always been transparent about it. This was a hoax. The th I made this this press release that was just a mediocre, awesome biography of, of Hollis Benton. If the press did not contact me, if they didn't do their due diligence to make a basic phone call to me, they wrote an amazing review about an amazing rediscovery of an amazing art history, right? So they mm -hmm. never got the memo that it was a hoax, but I was very forthright about the fact that it was a hoax. Um, so there is this, this hyperstition thing is real in terms of these games and, uh, um, yeah. And, and, and this other show that you're talking about is called seeing eye awareness. Um, it's, uh, I'm making this at the exact same time as Hollis Benton, um, to give some context, you know, Hollis Benton is a psyop. It's a, it's truly, I have psyoped the art world with the most candy coated fantasy it's ever had of itself. Uh, and I don't want to be like, Oh, ha ha. I tricked you. It's like, I'm learning from myself constantly in terms of how to, you know, create pattern recognition. And, um, and no, I think it's uh, positive. I mean, the psychological operation doesn't have to have a negative effect, right? You're creating this self-belief or hype in the Hollywood machine and the art creation. And it's kind of creating the fantasy for people to continue to live that fantasy. So I think mm -hmm. what's interesting about the next show is that you start exploring, well, some of the darker sides of <laughs> psychological operations and manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. The um, <clears throat> That is, again, a, a a show that's now in Eastern Europe. Uh, it was called Seeing Eye Awareness, and it happens in Ljubljana, Slovenia. And um, and the um, that is again within a festival environment. Uh, and I was the headline show, um, and the festival had a theme called Rumors. Uh, I already had my idea um, before. I knew I wanted to go and take this work I had done with um, creating, uh, you know, if you could imagine for a second, like this, I hate these words like LARPing and tricking, and I just don't think they're fair. You know, they simplify intentions. I believe in hats and I believe in um, invocation. I've said it now a bunch of times. Um, and in American Esoterica, I was a vulnerable uh, you know, page or like a prophet mediator person who was just finding their feet. Uh, Tritor Satori is a full-time, a full-on priest who's uh, understanding their, you know, uh, relationship between divine energy. Um, and I, and then, you know, with Hollis Benton, that's the charlatan. 
Um, you know, it's it's me thinking of the role of the mediator. Again, it's about me playing roles of the curator as a mediator of reality, of stories, uh, you know, in folkloric and 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 cliched senses. And um and so Hollis Benton is the uh, is in a way the charlatan. And um and with seeing eye awareness, it's like that's the conspiracy theorist uh coming out now like in a full sense like i don't think i was i think i was i was having a, a, a game i wasn't certain of in americana esoterica and now i really understand how you can weaponize aesthetics uh and it's uh and it's it's something i've thought about that leads us to talking about the soros story uh but the soros story comes back for me in ljubljana um because it's um it's in ljubljana I, I've been given this opportunity to make this headlining show where I'm effectively going to put together case studies of examples of artists whose practice has been weaponized uh, as aesthetics to create disruption. I'm actually showing real, again, kind of like with Omul Negru, dangerous things, not just artworks, but things that are weaponized aesthetics. Uh, so, for example, I, I'm, I'm the first and only person to show the, uh, the fuck is that movie called? Uh, uh, the Innocence of Muslims, which is a, a the film they declare that Hillary Clinton declared caused the the burning of the ben, uh, the Benghazi riots and the burning of the American embassy. Um, the was this uh, movie that uh, shows Muhammad in, in uh, vile kind of situations. Um, so I showed that as an art film because I always saw that film as an art film. Um, so I had different artifacts and things that represented magical thinking, you know, the, the materialization of conspiracy theory as, you know, real conspiracies or um, in, in, in one, you know, so there was one gallery that was very evidence and case study based and then another gallery that was um, about the intersection of these things and a cumulative power, maybe opening a door. Uh, I was trying to create a new language for the occult, uh, like not just the, uh, the languages of the occult are always uh, retrospective, looking backwards um, at pre-existing old hidden things. Where's the new? Where's the new words that we can make, you know, that are occult? Um and the new patterns that don't necessarily relate to the old patterns. And so I tried to create a gallery that was like a ritual, um, you know, vortex kind of time traveler chamber or something. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the video that you've seen is what we could call the educational, the pedagogical video that a curator would do, except I've split my personality in two. I'm, uh, the daytime curator and nighttime curator and daytime curator is in a suit and he's very serious. He doesn't look at the camera. He's deadpan and nighttime curator is looking at the camera and he's fully, you know, a convicted, you know, full of conviction and is a, you know, is the conspiracy theorist. And, um, and it's this balance between these voices that are me um, trying to uh, tell you about <clears throat> different ways in which um this thing we're calling art is actually something else. Um, it's 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 where I'm first forming this language where I'm, I'm really trying to consciously uh, methodologically lose the word art because art, calling it art is a 
is creating a placebo effect or a distraction to like a tro you know for trojan horsing and um and so and i believe that that's been the case for a long time um that art functions in that way and of course you know it's a vehicle for ideology but i think there's a lot of other ways when we can think of tactical media that we we call a lot of tactical media art and it makes it seem like safe cute conceptual interventions in social space but no man these are fucking experiments social experiments that are highly disruptive to perception and and uh you know reality so uh and sometimes they're not done by artists they're just packaged that way so this was a way to explore all these things and and really you know address my problems that i had also with ideas of institutional critique which in 2018 you know we don't george floyd's not dead yet uh institutional critique i never believed was anything more than a neoliberal uh form of lobbying uh and now that is just totally obvious uh that institutional critique is just well-branded lobbying uh for a very specific for very specific political purposes um propaganda for very specific political interests and um and uh and you know it sounds so obvious to say these things now but nobody was saying this shit back then uh we we talk you know there's a lot of people that do hardcore institutional critique but they would uh they would they would balk at the idea that they're a a sock puppet uh but they are they often are um and uh so anyways maybe, maybe that can can connect us to the soros influencing machine project that you're yeah yeah yeah, dude. Sorry, I'm like I feel like I'm just giving you these these monologues. I, I, I hate no, to... they're I think they're fantastic. I think they're you're actually. I mean, I see the arc of your show, and it's it's interesting to see because you're an insider. Um, I'm looking at like as a viewer, and I mean, I think it's pretty, especially the last three years. I think everyone's become aware of some of the psychological operations that governments and institutions partake in through media, right? Yeah, and what was so interesting about the Soros project is just so obvious, right? And I think the whole conspiracy about Soros, I mean, there's layers to him, obviously. Um, and I think you explore some of those in your PDF, but even most people think, you know, the deep conspiracy is that he's just an MI6 cover, right? You can't critique, you, you know, Soros for a variety of reasons, but behind that is just another government, either the British or the American. And like you said, they're trying to weaponize this, media to influence culture and politics or the neoliberal aspect of it yeah yeah and i want to you know address something that if, if we're looking at this arc what have i done i've constantly undermined myself and the your ability it's like boy who cried wolf kind of thing uh if if you really are following the work you always think i'm playing a game I'm, I'm i'm constantly in the press called a trickster or a prankster you know these and these names are so stupid you know because i'm i'm a true believer and i actually have great intentions you know and i will like everything i talk about and i'm interested in with, with spirituality is genuinely there you know i'm trying to find cool ways to trick the mind to finding new alternatives and uh and um you know it's it's with absolute earnest that i do these things but what i have uh when you do these like over and over like hollis benton you know oh it, you, how could you possibly if, if i've done hollis benton how could you possibly believe that the soros thing is real 
you know, and not just a conspiracy theory or me playing a game. And, um, and I think that's the great, beautiful thing about it is I've, um, uh, you are, you're forced, of course, to ask that each time in a different way, or with Tritor Satori, you know, um, it's hard to explain how much I've compromised my own character through social media, you know, and my voice and trying to make believe, you know, and um, so when it comes to the Soros thing and this time that we're in, when everything is so conspiracy theory oriented, uh, it's so easy to say that I'm just playing a game and stealing another conspiracy theory or something. Uh, when in fact, of course, that's not the case. This is legitimately real and uh, legitimately uh, a thing that we're protecting ourselves from seeing by calling it things like conspiracy theory uh, or or is uh, even worse, you know, like anti-Semitic to, you know, uh, look at and critique whatever the work of George Soros is. So, you know, I am in, uh, if we look at this arc, <clears throat> it's it's this perfect case study into darkness into real ideas of social engineering and weaponized aesthetics and things that, you know, I, I was touching on and playing with uh, that all the while I've, 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 I've followed the story. I've learned so much from this story. Like I told you in the beginning, I had a gallery. I represented artists that came from the nineties from the Soros network. It's not a new story to me. I've been following it since, you know, I was a kid basically. And I've, always turned it in my head like a prism you know i've always renewed my thoughts about it and it was in ljubljana when i'm doing my conspiracy theory show that i just was like this is it man this is the real deal this story because it's got everything nobody talks about it it's literally erased no one's allowed to talk about it it gets like spooky as soon as you do um it, it had so much taboo and occult uh enshrouding it that it was obvious that i had to fucking put a huge light on it and and use it within my own work but also you know it's me going back to my roots as a journalist and my true interests, which have always been passionately engaged within the politics and cultures of eastern europe and um you know i i discovered this thing for myself when i was a journalist in 2006 and and um and what I've, you know, continued to do interviews with people for fucking 17 years and I always chased the story, but it was only in 20, 2018. I was like, this is the real deal. This is the conspiracy that I've, this is the Goonies narrative that I was just dying for. And I've, it's always, and it's been chasing me this whole time. It was Aaron, always there. Could, so for people who aren't familiar with this project, could you give us a summary of the influencing machine? And what the Soros Center for Contemporary Art, what they are, what this Goonies uh, world that you discovered. Summarize kind of where you're going with your work. It's interesting. Hmm. Well, and I don't normally get to, I mean, I've, I, I appreciate this. I've, I've, I'm going to be honest, I've done, like, you're the seventh podcast I've done in, like, the last six months. And uh, and I've, very, I've really tried very hard to not be redundant. Uh, and I appreciate the ability to put this in a context of my whole practice. Uh, I'm really grateful that you're willing to look at this arc. Um, and uh, so it's it's great to be able to do this. Um, well, well, I think it's more interesting because everyone was just, I listened to another one and they were just really focused on the Soros kind of influencing machine project. But I was like, where is this coming from? 
I wanted mm -hmm. to know where your arc actually is from. You just don't land at that kind of major project from nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll just uh, start with the, your question to introduce it. Um, the, the the Soros the, the influencing machine exhibition um, that I did uh, in 2022 in in Warsaw at the Ujedowski Castle is a uh, is a, a full scale anthropological study of the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network, which is a uh, an unprecedented NGO non governmental organization network of contemporary art institutions that pop up overnight in the recently collapsed Soviet Union all across Eastern Europe, every major city, Belgrade, Sarajevo, Tallinn, Vilnius, Riga, Warsaw, Prague, St. Petersburg, Moscow, Almaty, Bucharest, Sofia, Chisinau, Kiev, they all overnight within a span of three years suddenly have this asymmetrically powerful uh, new sheriff in town who is going to help shepherd uh, creative practice into the new paradigm. And um, and when I was a journalist, when I ran Flash Art International, I had what I believe to be a very good awareness of the, his the evolution of the global art world. Uh, and this came from, you know, just my autistic curiosities of, 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 of wanting to understand art and the art world and contemporary art and the flow of it. And, uh, and, and, you know, having worked at Gagosian and different places trying to, you know, it's a lot of mapping is, a, is uh, and patterns is a, is a big part of how I've approached all these flows of energy. And, uh, and then, and then suddenly I'm running a magazine after having done my curating degree at the Royal College of Art, which is, you know, at the time there were only 10 curating programs in the world. And the Royal College of Art one was the most, one of the most prestigious. And, uh, and, it's, and its education is rooted in post-colonial theory and uh, histories of curatorial practice. <clears throat> and, and so for as, you know, when you think about your, ed your education, uh, and mine, I felt I had a really in-depth knowledge of the the way in which the global art world appeared, you know. And I and I at that time had been to many biennials and was going to as many as I could, you know. And the biennial was such an amazing, um, uh, you know, trait of the global art world. It's like this thing that everyone wanted a biennial, and it was a way to embrace the global uh, and create the global narrative within your uh, regional. Uh, environment and uh and so the biennial um movement uh which is kind of from you know biennials exist prior to the 90s but they really there's an uptick from 95 to you know 2005 that's extraordinary and then around 2002 uh freeze art fair starts 2003 is the first freeze art fair and that represents what becomes the takeover of that global shift in how the speed and production and focus works. So it goes from everyone's going to biennials to now everyone's going to art fairs and the art fairs kind of take over as sites of production and visibility and practice. Biennials are still there though. And, you know, um, biennials serve a different purpose. They're the nonprofit, you know, righteous art world. 
and versus the commercial behemoth of whatever the art fairs were doing. And, um, but in 2006, I'm, I'm running flash art and we're doing these uh, regional surveys, focus issues. Uh, every issue we do like a focus issue. And I'm seeing this reference to this network of, of uh, Soros. I see this name, Soros Center for Contemporary Art. And I'm like, shit, man, I've never heard of that before. And, um, and I can't remember the first one I saw, but, you know, I Googled it. And then uh, I saw there's another one and the book, there's another one, there's another one. There's, what the hell? You know, there's like, you just kept finding them. And, um, and there was not enough for me to understand it. You know, there wasn't enough information out there to understand what it truly was. And I was just so curious. And at that same time, I was, I had my burgeoning interest developing in Eastern Europe, which was a truly genuine, passionate, uh, innocent, uh, but highly enthusiastic interest of understanding art in a new way, in a new paradigm, in a place where there's no market, in a place where context is is bricolage, and uh, we can, you know, imagine it's a it's a more kind of savage way to make things make sense, uh, in you know outside of the confines of you know the properly institutionalized art worlds of the West, and. Um, and yet I'm seeing things in each of these Eastern European art worlds that are just like new languages for me, but they look like the languages that I know. Uh, you know, we we do this stupid thing in the West of like, oh, you're the, you're the, you know, whatever, the, you're the Romanian David Hammonds or something like that uh, as a way to kind of make sense of, of an artist's practice by making it make sense through a Western practice. You know, you would find things like that, that you, there's an artist who's got a practice that's uncannily like some kind of conceptual practice that you're super into, but it's operating on different terms, serving a different function, wholly different set of references and totally different effect. And, uh, and, I, and I just thought, wow, this is, this is wild, you know? Uh, the, you know, just getting into the art of these regions was so illuminating for me because I just saw the role of the artist differently, their relationship to society, what their work does and, and the, and avant-garde, the military is a military term, uh, in its truest sense. And the truest form of avant-garde is survival. Uh, and that is uh, the what most avant-garde's of, of Eastern Europe are consisting of is artists making practices that are about surviving in these conditions and against systems previously quite oppressive systems. And and I was in, you know, uh, everything. I, and the more I looked, the more I was in. And uh, and this Soros thing was like this great detail that was like a through line uh, that I didn't understand. But I wanted to, and and so I, I I created a research trip for myself, and I in 2006 August 2006 I traveled to 10 cities that had Soros centers, uh, and to tell you that story, the they said these Soros centers they popped up from starting in uh, the first one is in Budapest, and it's in '89 uh, that it uh, the Soros Fine Art uh, and Documentation Archive begins '88 '89. And then it changes its name in 1991 to the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Budapest. And then in 92, Prague, Bratislava, Warsaw, and one other open up. 93, um, it's Kiev. Um, bah, 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 bah. There's just each year, there's like four or five. 
And then in 96, uh, it's St. Petersburg, Odessa, Chisinau. And then in 98, Almaty in Kazakhstan is the last one that opens. By the time Almaty opens, these things are already, uh, the majority of them, there's 20 of them total, they're already in what's called the sunset years, where George Soros has taken this project where he's manifested this enormous and unprecedented network of art centers, and he's already starting to cut the funding on them. They're already disappearing. Uh, They're shadows of how they began. Uh, And they began in this incredibly bombastic and very asymmetrically powerful and influential way. And then they were already, you know, out the door by the year 2000, um, you know, half of them are gone and half of them are transitioning into becoming ICA Zagreb or ICA or the, uh, the Latvian center for contemporary art Riga, you know, they're, they're chained, they're dropping the Soros name to become independent art institutions. And, um, so, and so Aaron, by 2006, ask a cool question about context. He just decides to open all these 20 gallery centers overnight, basically, are they commercial galleries? Are they just nonprofits? Are they, I mean, you have some quotes about, you know, he broke down the USSR. I'm just curious, what do you think his intention is? Has anyone, have you, you know, did you ask or what was your journalistic practice in investigating this initiative, you know, the start of this project? I can tell you historically, he has never said what these things were and why he was doing them. He's never said what his interests were in art. Um, the, um, that is kind of left, left up to, you know, there's this, uh, pioneering leader of these things named Susie Masoli, who was the architect of the network. And she's, um, you know, he just had full faith in Susie to do, you know, Susie's vision. And, um, and what were they? They are a subsidiary of the Open Society Institute, which is the largest and most powerful NGO network on planet earth. Um, Open Society Institute, which is referred to as the Open Society Foundation. Um, uh, the Open Society Institute is uh, is George Soros's, um, um, you know, think tank, uh, not uh, NGO, but it's more than an NGO. I think calling it an NGO really simplifies the the, the breadth and intentions of this thing. Um, this is literally the. Uh, the uh, machine that is going to manufacture all the details of transition and uh, in terms of shepherding each of these vulnerable places into the new world, into the new world order of, you know, becoming a part of the European Union, becoming Western, pro-Western. So the Open Society is involved in any number of radical changes that uh, Naomi Klein refers to as, as shock therapy in the grand scheme of how Um, all these economies and cultural um, structures were being um, reconfigured and socially engineered to become pro-Western. And the Open Society Institute is involved in everything from healthcare, uh, political science, education, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And and it's vast. And the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network is like a a short-lived experiment within it. And they are art centers that are non-collecting, um, uh, like uh, modeled after the Institute of Contemporary Art, Boston or London. And um, and they are 
not just galleries, though. They're archives that are going to collect the, the lost histories of the um, 60s and 70s and 80s under communism um, to help create a new history, a new art history of, of radical art practices that were happening underneath the Iron Curtain, behind the Iron Curtain, in a way establishing a narrative that there's this burgeoning individualism, uh, this autonomous creative voice that's trying to break through the oppressive structures of socialist realism and so forth. And, um, and, 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 and the collecting of that history lays the bedrock for what becomes the 90s, which is the active period of the Soros centers and all the work that they do. Um, but there's a there's something more to this than just collecting art history and enabling, you know, freedom of expression. Um, there, the Soros centers are um, dumping tons of money into production, producing uh, tons of artworks and books. Uh, the Open Society Institute is, is the most prolific publisher of the time. And, um, and the Soros Network by far makes some of the most interesting uh, conceptual art catalogs I've ever seen. Uh, each one different and interesting. There's, I mean, there's, of course, there's, there's a, I could give you a top 10 list, uh, but they're, they're, you know, if, if you're a book collector, especially an art book collector, these guys are great case studies in uh, histories of, of art book design. And, um, but it's not just that, that's just the, the, the sweet details that we tend to remember. Um, one thing I always try to do when I introduce this, this project is, uh, is, uh, that we should not refer to what they did as art. Uh, calling it art is again, back to this idea of the Trojan horse. It actually does something to your mind to relax your critical thinking and prevent you from seeing it as anything other than art. Because uh, who would not you know, support this philanthropic initiative that's just about supporting art? Um, and how could you be critical of such a, a great thing as the helping of all these communities create a bunch of art? Because um, there's there's a lot of hooks in that that uh, that are lost now to history. Um, and uh, my research around this thing is focused on uh, three um, anomalies. I'm, I'm pro anomaly with this story. I try not to be pro or anti Soros. Uh, the, to, to, to criticize Soros is to fall in this trap, uh, this Rorschach test trap that um, just by saying Soros's name, you have uh, you've begun a game in people's minds that you are playing with a boogeyman or a conspiracy theory. And uh, <clears throat> and I think we should just look at this thing in art historical terms as an unprecedented anomaly that we have no comparison for whatsoever and it gives us if we do an audit like we do for pop art like we do for land art or conceptual art when we try to look at the what was the first pop art show uh this this initiative this source network of 20 art institutions gives us the most advanced socially engaged practice that we've ever seen in our human project uh it gives us the most advanced uh curatorial practice that we've ever seen uh, in the history of curating at this highly experimental and very philanthropically well-funded level. And it uh, introduces in the 
details of this, um, this idea of tactical media, which is not art at all, uh, which is the weaponization of perception and the tricks to uh, create, uh, you know, um, games in perception that can disrupt reality. Um, and, and it's a philosophy that's uh, born through Soros uh, funded, you know, think tank initiatives of adjacent groups that are connected to this, but it definitely is uh, the tactical media thing is for me, the most interesting. Uh, I mean, all of these things are interesting. These three anomalies, social engaged practice, curatorial practice and tactical media, but the tactical media thing is where we see that this is definitely not art, um, that this is something else. And, um, and it's uh, and it's using art tactically to to perform experiments in social engineering, and uh, and and so uh, and the social engaged practice and the curatorial practice are delivery systems, um, each and unto themselves. Uh, the um, the Soros network, the way it worked, uh, like I said, they were producing a lot of art that was done through the annual exhibition program. Every single one of those 20 institutions did an annual exhibition and these were highly funded. Some of them having uh, records say up to around hundred thousand dollars for one exhibition, which in American money in the former Soviet union in the early nineties is an unprecedented amount of money to spend on art when it's like, in Chisinau, Moldova, a pack of cigarettes cost 10 cents. You can't even imagine what it's like to spend that much money. Um, and they're 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 basically grooming artists through a open call process. Uh, when they do these annual exhibitions, they send out an open call. And in those open calls, there's pretty strict parameters of how they want uh, art to appear. And so what you do is you you take a system where the artist union's falling apart. And uh, there's this there's this path, this clearly well-funded potential path to the very rich and opportune opportunity-oriented global art world of the West through this NGO. And there's this open call, you know, make why not try to be a part of this thing if you're really wanting to be an artist. Uh, and so you had a lot of very traditional artists uh, drop their paintbrush and pick up. Uh, these you know far out technologies of the time, uh, new media and internet-based technologies, and uh, and and conform their practices to these open calls and make pitches in line with those open calls, and then the you know a selection would be made from those a, you know a, a democratic selection from a board would be made, and those projects that were selected would be groomed to then be produced um and by the time they get revealed which is now when we get to the curatorial practice uh, um they um they're packaged in a way that um you know the press release will tell you that the artist wanted to do these things and that the artist for example wanted to enter social space and wanted to you know leave the the gallery and and wanted to make disruptions in public and and so forth, but these are the things that the open calls told them to do, and um, and they were just doing what they needed to do to uh, be a part of it, and uh, you know follow what were the instructions, and then you have these curatorial practices, which are in some cases um, doing some of the most advanced things of their time in terms of using sacred sites, historical sites, public sites, media. Um, you know, in ways that were 
uh, highly experimental and unprecedented um, for when we look because I, you know, I say this as somebody who's an, I'm an expert at curatorial practice. I, I went to school for it and I was a fetishist for it. I've got every book that matters on the history of this stuff. And I can tell you what emergent behavior looks like based on my knowledge of how these histories are written. And there's nothing, and especially because this is a huge blind spot, you've never seen emergent behavior at this level of really advanced social engaged practice where artists are, they're not just leaving the gallery, they're going to insane asylums, orphanages, places that are of great interest of the NGO. And they're like using the artist like a Trojan horse to perform these acts of hygiene in these social spaces that maybe the NGO would not be readily welcomed. Oh, no, no, no. Let's just let, we just want to, you know, I'm an artist. I want to go and see what these places look like or work with these communities. Um, the works that would come out of these, um, some of the, my case study shows, they weren't artworks and they weren't appreciated as artworks and they aren't historicized as artworks and they're forgotten, but they are highly uh, experimental experiments. Uh, they're, they're, sorry, they're, they're, they're highly political experiments in social space and um, that are in the service of the NGO and in the interest of the NGO. And then you have these curators making these, these shows that are essentially like what I do. You know, if I tell you the cumulative power of these things will have a grand effect, you have these curators who are essentially weaponizing entire communities of artists to create these huge ripple effects uh, in in places that don't have pretext for understanding what contemporary art is. You know, we're talking about places that in the, in the fall of the Soviet Union, you didn't, you didn't have advertising. There are legends of how Saatchi and Saatchi popped up billboards the day after the Berlin Wall came down. And, you know, so advertising, if we just think about what advertising means in the language of tactical media, um, that's that's beginner level shit. Um, these the the Soros network through that NGO of the Open Society Institute was giving artists access early access to some of the most advanced internet technology, new media technology, uh, and, and and whatever to and then permission, carte blanche to walk into public space and make um, acts of shamanism and cultural exorcism and. We're gonna we're gonna mess with your monuments. You know they would go and 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 literally desecrate monuments and in the name of art, and and of course this is what we call the desovietization process and how you get rid of these uh, icons of the past um, and do that through the the permission of the artist. You know making old making new bread from old bread, um, <clears throat> treating history like a raw material for you know the future. And uh, yeah, and it's and it's a rich history that I am literally the only person. I mean, there's other people that tell this story, but it's in the confines of of a very kind of esoteric academia. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a cult. Uh, that's an occult uh, realm uh, that has no bearing on reality. Uh, when you talk to anyone in the West who's fluent in understandings of the history of the global art world or curatorial practice. There's not a single person that's ever heard of the Soros Center for Contemporary Art Network. And if they have, they've heard about it through my work. It just, I keep seeing the parallels to your show. And when you highlighted the, what is the illusion of Islam or something? What is the psychological video that radicalized Al-Qaeda in Libya? Yeah, yeah. I, I think for Westerners, it's quite clear to see that that's clear propaganda. 
But this one's really sophisticated propaganda, the Soros network. I mean, like you're saying, you're, you're trying to de-Sovietize, introduce globalization, liberalize the economy. I mean, it, it just seems like a massive project to really, I mean, I mean, it's destabilized, but it's just, it's insane. I mean, it's just a psychological mindfuckery that's going on on people who are quite vulnerable, actually, to these kind of tools. I don't and in the I... name of art, in the name of art, in the name of democracy, all with goodwill intentions. I think there's an important thing to say that no one in the in the outset had bad intentions. You know, it's like his the 2020 of history uh, of hindsight allows us to see that this is a highly manipulative thing, that it is social engineering. But I don't know if it's fair to say that you know the artists were you know the the, the the this is this is what's called the open conspiracy you know everyone knew what they that this was a conspiracy for the greater good and uh but now of course that's different um this is none of these art worlds that soros created um are healthy uh or have lasted um all of them are art worlds that are bifurcated um they they these these art worlds were seen as sellouts, people that were selling out to the West. Um, those other art worlds still exist. There were art worlds from the artist union that got no airtime during the Soros period, and they got completely shunned from that money and that exposure. And, uh, and you know, what's happening now? Um, you know, the, the NGOs still present, but weak. I mean, it's, it's still very powerful, honestly, but those art worlds are vulnerable. Um, and in fact, you know, the, uh, what's happening, the reason I did this in Poland at the place that I did it, uh, was because for me, it represents the full circle of, of, of how problematic this story is. If we have to look at it from, uh, the, the evolutionary narrative of, of introducing socially engaged practice. And now let's historicize this highly artificial insemination of socially engaged practice in a right-wing contemporary art institution, uh, which is where we did the exhibition uh, in, in, in 2022. Um, this is essentially, you know, Frankenstein's monster come home to roost. You know, it's a, this is literally these art worlds mirroring this socially engaged practice back at the, uh, at the West. Yeah, could you elaborate a little bit? I for, that's in the PDF. I'm trying to forget the name. Uh, the Polish show, and there was a lot of response. So they all thought it was like a right wing. How, how did that emerge? Or what, what was the response to that? Well, um, how it emerged is is weird. Uh, that's just me, you know, going on weird intuition. Um, but I saw this in COVID lockdown which was a very dark period for me. This, this, this research takes off in a way during COVID lockdown for me. Um, Cause it's like, I did this show in 2019. I did this influencing machine show in 2019 in Bucharest and I thought I had accomplished it. And, but what I did when I made that show was I built a huge archive. I, I built an unprecedented archive full of uh, oral history interviews I've interviewed, you know, 50 plus people of the inner circle. I've interviewed the most inner circle people of this story. I've gotten the most personal contact with Susie Masoli, the architect who refuses to talk to the art world now. And um, and I've, I went into her home with a documentary film crew. And um, 
and got her life story on camera. But then, so the COVID thing happens. I I, I was with Susie in tw- end of 2019 with the film crew, and then and then we go into COVID, and and my career just went, you know, it just vaporized. I was not making shows when we were locked down for 18 months. Uh, there was just there was no need for my practice, and as a cope, uh, like a psychological coping, you know, safe space. I had a moment where I was like, I've come so far with building this archive and telling this story. Um, This feels good to just keep going. I just, I'm just going to keep building my archive and I'm just going to keep doing interviews because I kept finding shit. You know, I kept just building and, you know, it was like having a a set of Legos that I could keep adding, you know, bricks to. And, um, and, um, and then I got the attention of a think tank um, that wanted to include me in a, a, a um, in a conference that they were doing about the impact of the NGO movement on the visual cultures of Eastern Europe, and they were looking across different, you know, NGO phenomena. But the Soros Network is the fucking crown jewel, and uh, so they had a whole. Uh, a day dedicated to Soros presentations. And it was me next to Maria Hlaviova, who's the director of Bach the ba, uh, uh, in Utrecht, which is the center basis for art and for activism and Kunst, and, which is a, a, basically a museum dedicated to art and activism. And Maria Hlaviova was the founding director of the Soros Center in Bratislava and uh, one of the early uh, adjunct lecturers at Bard curatorial program and 93 and uh so i'm there on a panel uh or doing a conference next to soros people and i'm presenting my research and at that point i was in this really amazing place very confident that i had made a breakthrough with it and seeing that this was uh, a, a highly elaborate form of, of astroturfing done by a cult uh an ngo like cult and um and and I could prove my anomalies, and um, and I did it right in her face, and uh, and she did she gave me zero pushback, zero pushback. She agreed with it, everything I said, and that unfortunately just made me feel so validated, and uh, and I at that point I realized I need to remake this show because. We then had George Floyd happen, and I watched the whole art world become so um, uh, evangelically identitarian oriented in this bizarre way. I saw socially engaged practice now become the exclusive form of communication in, in contemporary art. I've never been an activist. I've never believed in art as a political sock puppet, and suddenly that's all that we're allowed to do. And it's all we're allowed to be. I'm interested in spirituality. I'm interested in things that nobody wants anymore. And so then I see that I have a way to maybe expose a huge story that'll tell us where all this comes from. You know, if we're going to be good art historians, again, like where did pop art come from? I could tell you where social engaged practice come came from. And it wasn't fucking artist. It was an NGO. And here's the story. And so... At that time, after that conference, I um, somebody sent me an article from the New York Times 
about uh, that was a, a um, um, this uh, it was basically like a foreboding article about um, this new right wing contemporary art institution or sorry this right wing takeover of contemporary art institutions in Poland and how this was a contagion that we have to be very, very wary of. This is dangerous. And this article was about this guy, this new director of the Uzdowski Castle. And the Uzdowski Castle is the oldest and most important and most experimental contemporary art institution in Warsaw and arguably in Poland. And, uh, and suddenly um, the right-wing government his, uh, the, the Peace and Justice Party or the, the Law and Justice Party takes over in 2018, 2019 and, you know, and everyone's shocked that they go and clean house at all the municipal institutions. Well, governments have a right to do that, first of all, um, to, to go and clean house at these institutions and set their agendas. It's just contemporary art institutions have always been treated with kid gloves in the grand scheme of, of the political narratives of uh, cultural landscapes. And, and they've been allowed to be these neoliberal bastions. And, uh, and in this case, Poland, they understood the, the, the game was up basically for the contemporary art uh, institution enterprise and the right-wing governments that are continuing to take over now understand that they can establish narratives and through their own agenda, through these institutions, and um, and so this was the this was the emer this was the moment of the emergent phenomenon, the emergent behavior. I saw this article from the New York Times, and it was a profiling this new director, Piotr Bernatowicz, who is an interesting guy. I mean, you can't just you know the hit piece that the New York Times made did everything to tell you he's a nefarious, evil person. Dude, he's like a conservative, definitely. Um, the 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 dog whistling language that they used in the article, I thought was overstretching uh, because I looked it all up uh, before I made contact with these people, and I saw and I saw right between the lines. I saw this New York Times piece was a was a hit piece that was trying to prevent us from looking at this thing, from taking it serious, from and and to help bring it down. And definitely don't waste any time looking at it, though. Don't look. We're going to dog whistle as hard as possible in this article to make sure you do not look at this thing. And sadly, that has the opposite effect on me. When people outright call in a, a current event narrative, a conspiracy theory or a false flag or anything, I'm immediately paying attention and I'm paying double attention. And so when you dog whistle shit... Uh, I can tell these are games that the media plays with its public and they are, I'm not just speculating. That's a fact. Uh, this is a, this is a way in which the press knows how to emotionally um, antagonize its audience and control thought patterns and create sectarian thought patterns. And, uh, and that was, it was this New York times article was dripping in these basic tricks that journalism does to make you not take this serious. And, and I saw this article and I was like, man, I bet these guys would be into a spiritual show. And uh, I, I bet they might be into my Soros show. Uh, and so I just, I wrote the dude on Facebook. Um, and then I never got a reply from him. Um, I'm giving you this whole story of how I I, I, I reached out to these guys because I've, I've never really been forthright about this. Um, I told everyone... Um, from the beginning that they contacted me 
um, that I was put in this moral dilemma to choose to bring my story to them, knowing that it would politicize my story, because I was always very aware that my story could be politicized. And uh, even though I've never told my Soros story with political intentions, it was always pro-anomaly, I knew that this story could have major political implications if framed the right or the wrong way. And, and so the story I told everyone to get artists on board to make me look like I had thought this through was that they contacted me and asked me if I would remake my Soros show. And I made a bunch of demands on them to make it make sense, uh, such as asking for a book. And I, my first demand was that they fly me out there right away uh, so I could meet them and I could shake hands with the devil and you know make sure I can understand what these people are and what they're doing with contemporary art. And then have felt like I've done the due diligence to now bring artists into this environment, knowing full well that there would be resistance. Even though I did the show in 2019 with 40 some artists, I knew there would be attrition. I knew there would be resistance uh, because now once it's in a right wing place where it's a, it's a whole new story somehow, even though I'm telling the same story I told in 2019, somehow there's going to be this knee jerk reaction that allows my story to now become a conspiracy theory and an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory on top of that, even though that wasn't a part of the narrative in 2019. So I was fascinated by these, what were immediate identifiable patterns of how my story was going to be suddenly flipped. And, and I wanted to embrace those like gifts. Now I told you the lie that I told the people to help create the confidence in my choices. I told you I wrote him on Facebook and he never replied to me. Um, I did get a reply three, four months later from another person. And, and it was a reply that was out of the blue and it had no reference to my Facebook messenger message to Piotr. So I was able to say, Hey, I did get contacted out of the blue, but I actually initiated this dialogue with them because I wanted to weaponize my show and, and I wanted to weaponize this context. Um, and uh, because I had never, um, and then, and then I, and then they flew me out there because I wanted to understand what a right-wing contemporary art institution was not that i need to understand what right-wing contemporary art is i fully understand that i just i've like i've never heard of a right-wing contemporary art institution and i want to know what their program looks like and what their like long-term ambitions are for art in the in the name of contemporary art and uh because that's unheard of and all i can see is my industry blacklisting and blackballing this thing what's the worst thing we could do in our highly sectarian in political environment, the worst and most dangerous thing you could do is have dinner with these people and learn from them. Because I'm not right-wing. I've never been right-wing. I don't have any right-wing bones in my body. I'm a diehard liberal, but I'm a fucking diehard anthropologist. And when I see an opportunity to infiltrate a tribe, I'm gonna do it. And so, um, so I did, and I went there and I met these guys and I had real amazing, uh, you know, uh, experience kind of bonding with them. And, um, and if I can just tell you one thing that brings this in a funny full circle way to like through the, the through line, uh, I had this dinner with Piotr Bernatowicz and the other members of the castle, you know, 
who are like you know the, the evil guys basically and and uh and i'm, and I'm just so I, and i'm and we're we have an immediate trust i can't explain how that happened it happened because i brought these gifts that happened to have incredible coincidence to them that that, that shocked all of us and that were and it made me this you know uh like it was just like this is going to be great uh so we're at dinner and we're having beers and um and i can't and i and you can't even imagine the darkness that my life has been to this point covid darkness career darkness that i've manifested the possibility that i'm going to remake this show on a whole nother level weaponize it <clears throat> make a book fucking evil castle i mean you can't even imagine like what how empowered i suddenly feel from having come from nothing and um and i'm sitting at this table and i'm feeling this you know i'm like not that i'm like oh my god these are my new best friends the right wing guys but i'm like i'm like guys can i interrupt the conversation for a second can i can i be weird can i be romantic can I make this awkward? I don't mean to make this awkward, but I just need to be romantic for just one second. And I turned to Piot and he, and there, everyone's kind of now weirded out by me. Um, I turned to Piot and I'm like, Piot, I wrote you in the darkest moment of my life. I wrote you a message in a bottle that uh, was extending my hand for a potential collaboration. And, uh, and I'm pitching you this idea of this sorrow show. And, and and it was a message in a bottle that I sent to you, and and you never replied. Now I know that message was received because I'm here right now. I know that message was received because I'm here today, and I just want to say uh, thank you. You know, I, I want to say this is it's so important for me that that message was received, and I'm sitting here with you right now, and that we're planning this. And Piot got really uncomfortable uh he um he looked he was pale and he was looking at me and and he was like you know um i i did get your message i i got your message and um and uh and i'm and i'm sorry i didn't reply to you uh and i was like i don't give a fuck man because I'm here right now. This is magical that I'm here right now. And that's all that matters is that well, this is happening. The message in the bottle was received. He was like, no, 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 no. I need to tell you something. I received your message, Aaron. And, and I looked these ideas up and I was fascinated. I thought this is super interesting. And then I looked you up. And I saw that you work with witches and that you are involved in exorcism and summoning and working with black magic and serial killers and this boogeyman thing that you did. And I am a Polish Catholic and this is not a joke for me. And it scared me. And I did not write you for that reason. And then the other guy next to me, Marcel, was like, I too looked you up. And I also saw the Omo Negru. And, and we were all very concerned that you were uh, 
evil. And, uh, and I was just so taken aback. I was like, guys, I thank you so much for telling me that. That is an incredibly vulnerable thing for you to tell me. And, and I am so grateful that you were willing to admit that to me because you know what that says to me? That says that you have faith in me and you have faith in my work and what I do. And, and we had a very awkward laugh that just, it was sinister. Because uh, they were, and, and they remained highly skeptical of all this black magic stuff that I've been involved in. Um, but it, it became almost like the, the trust fall that we needed in that moment where, you know, and then they, you know, I, they were like, uh, they were like, we're, you know, and, and some of the last words of that night were like, and no witches, eh? You know, no, 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 no working with any witches and no, no, no summoning. Uh, and it was like, ha, 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 you know? And of course, what they did was they revealed to me their ultimate weaknesses. Um, and, and I went into this right wing context, you know, being accused already of people around me of giving a softball to the right, handing them this Soros story that they're just going to manipulate and use for their conspiracy, right wing conspiracy narratives around George Soros and Eastern Europe and blah, blah, blah. You are going to just, give them this, 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 this softball. And, but I knew that I'm not right wing. I'm also not a liberal anymore. I've lost faith in whatever that means. I'm not left either. I am an agent of chaos in all of this. And I began the planning of this exhibition in a way that no one was going to win. No one gets a softball from my show. And I used everything and when i was planning this show to employ aspects of tactical media on a uh, on a philosophical and applied level that helped reflect on the education i gained from the soros network and its history and in a way uh created uh media tactics of of pr of active measures of psyops of of spiritual interventions and of creating superstitious voodoo that were in line with the history of the Soros Network's use of semiotic shamanism, uh, but also helped to destabilize any belief that this could possibly be a favor to the right wing. I brought, you know, satanic symbols into their highly religious, very sacred house. They let me in the front door and I brought those things in. And I did it in, uh, in, 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 in the name of art. You know, I did it in this highly, of course, conceptual way, but that was highly consistent with the, uh, the ethos of the, the Soros network. And um, sorry, I could go on and on about this, but it's, uh, I, I don't know if I've, I've completely gone into the weeds with. Um, no, no, I think it's very interesting. I'm just curious what the relationship now is with the Western art world. I mean, are you banned now from doing witchcraft with the Polish right-wing people or have you been canceled? I, I haven't really, I don't know. I'm just curious where you are now with the existing kind of... I'm in, a, I'm, in a, I'm in a new place. You know, I'm in Denmark and and, and in Denmark, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, they're capable of having a big boy conversation about all this stuff. They don't use ghost stories to prevent you from seeing shit, you know? Denmark is uh, is is one of the Switzerland-like countries of the European Union that 
has a sober understanding of what the NGO movement was and doesn't immediately dismiss critical voices around it as anti-Semitic to prevent you from looking at it. Um, you know, there's nothing I've done in my project that is technically anti-Semitic. It's just that that language is so quickly used. As soon as you invoke George Soros's name, um, there's, there's this, these spells that people cast between calling it conspiracy theory or, or, you know, you know, highlighting George Soros's or making speculation on his motives as so-called anti-Semitic. Um, uh, in Denmark, you know, what is my standing in the art world? What was my standing in the art world? I had a great career in LA that uh, took a couple of turns and I've never compromised, you know? I've stayed true to my practice. I've stayed true to my beliefs. I've stayed true to who I am as a as a curator and my and what I believe to be the aboriginal function of art is as a vehicle for spirituality. And I just happen to have taken this uh highly political project and proven that everything that I believe is more valid than the superficial neoliberal bullshit that were that we've seen the art world consumed by. And, um, and, um, and, you know, and I've, and I've, and I've put myself on the line, you know, am I canceled? I don't know what they, that even means anymore. Or so, some people might argue that's a, that's a gift, you know, that's a PR coup or some shit uh, because you, you know, the, 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 the true thing that's happened here, the art world has never weighed in on my project. No mainstream art press has ever had the guts to, uh, properly talk about my uh, my work, my research, my anomalies, my narrative, the fact that I'm the only one to, you know, defect and and infiltrate the right wing, contemporary art museum, et cetera, et cetera. This is a uh, you know I've it's only proven that there's an extreme cowardice and a bizarre monopoly on how we're allowed to understand what art is, and uh, and 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 you can't fuck with it. You can't fuck with that safe space. Uh, and I, I think I've very successfully fucked with it. Um, and, uh, and what, you know, I'm, I'm reinventing myself in a, in a, in a regional art world that has, um, very healthy relationship with itself, with its identity, with its relationship to the world, with its relationship to art and funding of art, uh, and its institutions. It's, it's not been captured, you know, the for-profit and non-profit art worlds of the West have almost all been captured and are functioning as sock puppets in some way or another to corporate interests and to bizarre and, you know, ever more obsolete neoliberal uh, false promises and, and, and so forth, you know? So I, I look at my work as, as, as continually being on the cusp of, uh, of, 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 of new language, you know, and, uh, and this Soros research, is an incredible case study if you look at it, you know, for any number of things. Uh, for you know, the because it's not that I've just had a and you know created this innocent observational um, narrative. I've I've instrumentalized it and used it to create an applied methodology that only kind of essentially uh, proves my my gonzo anthropology work. Aaron. What are you currently working on now? What's your next show? Are you still working on Influencing Machine or what are you currently working on? Yeah, I have some residual uh, stuff from the Influencing Machine work. Um, I'm 
you know, my goal now is to revisit all these cities and, um, and, you know, bring my book, um, uh, and spread it like a contagion. And, uh, and, uh, and because, you know, what, what you don't realize is how, um, how much these art scenes would like to talk about this and don't have the ability to, because you cannot watch the watchmen. Nobody can talk about the NGO still in all of these places. And, and so for me, this random asshole from Los Angeles who has a highly zealous, you know, very long game interest in this to come out with this research, this book, this experiment, um, is, is quite liberating. Um, it's, it's, it's not the dream of these, you know, pseudo Western art worlds that remain in place from the Soros years. They certainly don't like the narrative that I'm pushing because it makes them all look captured. Um, but there's new generations of people who would like to be openly um, critical of what the nineties meant, what the false promises of neoliberalism have meant and what uh, the weaponization of aesthetics in their cultures have meant in this in this way and so um so i'm on a mission to continue this work as a kind of follow-up research uh because what i don't get is pushback no one has had the guts to stand up and tell me anything that i've said is wrong or uh inaccurate or not true or or whatever you know you i've had a, a one big um negative article come out on eflux that was a, a literal um what the hell do you call it i mean it's like, it's like a fucking elementary uh press tactic of repeating all the same dog whistles that people want to say about the right-wing takeover of polish institutions and then they kind of talk about my show and and but in a dismissing dismissive way um and and yet they you know they've clearly didn't see my show and they have no, uh, they don't care to give my show any agency. So the show is in a way, you know, there's, there's, you can can't, there's cancel culture. And then there's, there's, there's conscious ignorance culture. That is this other form of cancellation where people pretend that this didn't happen and we don't give it airtime to prevent uh, the, the feedback loop from happening. But I have people like you and I'm, mentioned you know i've done six seven other podcasts about this my story is getting out there my story is being heard uh it's only a matter of time before young academics start to write about it and and show that there's a contrasting narrative from the permitted narratives because when you go into who is writing this story other than me it's soros people you know octavian asanu is the only other major writer who has attempted to tell this grand story and he in his book that just came out, the post-socialist contemporary doesn't admit in the bio or anywhere in the book that he was the founding director of the Soros Center in Chisinau. And before that, the arts and culture officer at the Open Society Institute of Moldova. He has consciously omitted those details to prevent you from seeing what a conflict of interest it is for him to be telling this story. And so, you know, um, what I'm I'm still uh, pushing um, this thing as far as I can to get new data, and going and I'll be going to Kazakhstan in July to be a part of a conference about the future of archives and the stories archives the new stories archives can tell us, and I'll be one of the only people that you know is telling the story of the Soros Center that you know is the last one that happened there, and they all openly admit they don't know how to talk about it, and then they're, they're going to bring me in to talk about it. 
I'll go to Belgrade to talk about it. And hopefully when I get the trip to Belgrade funded, I'll go also to Skopje and to um, Zagreb. And then at that point, um, I'm invited to go back to Budapest because I've already been to Bucharest, Budapest, Warsaw. Um, and I'm going to go back to Budapest and we're going to create in a, uh, in the fall, in November, a like a, a 30 year anniversary kind of thing, uh, bringing in all sides of this conversation and, and create a, a battle royale, hopefully some kind of some kind. And, um, but I'll get to reflect on all the data that I'm the only one gathering essentially of all these places and how they reflected on it then and now and, uh, and how my show adds up to their perception of the events uh, or my research. Um, other than Soros work, I'm, I'm basically in an incubation period. Um, I'm doing some lectures. Uh, everything I've learned from the Soros research has led me to this new path around thinking about tactical media and tactical media literacy. So I'm, I'm coming up with a new um, kind of uh, set of lectures and maybe a book around that. And then, and then, you know, I'm on this path here in Denmark. I'm trying to make some shit happen uh, and, 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 and uh, get away from, you know, get, you know, find positive uh, ways to manifest my energy in, in the culture space. Hey, Rocco. Hey, Rocco. Hey, Rocco.